July of 2021, or rather here I am in July of 2021, having finally put together this episode, which Abe and I recorded back in September of 2020. It is all about Philip K. Dick's book, Ubik. We discuss it at some length. There's no reason for you to listen to this episode of the podcast unless you have, in fact, recently read or are otherwise intimately familiar with Philip K. Dick's Ubik. I mean, I can't stop you, obviously, but probably won't be terribly interesting because it is a dense and complicated and confusing book. And we do a less than stellar job of explaining precisely what happens from plot beat to plot beat in the following conversation. In addition to being uh, dense and confusing, as I said, it is also a really, really terrific book, as I think Abe and I make clear that we very much enjoyed it. If you don't own it yet and would like to, I have included some links in the show notes to the audiobook over on Amazon or the or the Kindle version or, in fact, a physical copy, which you can also buy. Just click through our links. It's a small thing that you can do to support the show. If you're going to buy the book, do it after clicking on the links provided in the show notes. In any event, I will uh, cede the floor here to Abe and myself from last year. Lori did not sit in on this particular conversation, so it's just the two of us talking about Philip K. Dick's book, Ubik. I'm Philip K. Dick. My name is Dick. Clearly, I don't know much about women let me hire like a woman uh, what makes you think that philip k dick thought that he didn't know much about Come women on, I'm doing the math. K. Dick, hey he was married five times he knew some women Here we are, Abe. Cast Iron Brains. A podcast fully fucking geeked up on a big supply of government-issue amphetamines, obsessively peeling at the little tear in the wallpaper just behind the mirror. There. Until it starts to peel away. But it's not the wallpaper flaking off, but the whole constancy of reality sloughing away. Not a mirror anymore, but a leak. And what's on the other side? A familiar bathroom with peeling wallpaper and a leaky mirror and a grotesque, aged version of yourself picking at the wallpaper, watching reality fall out of joint through a hole in the wall. And the only thing keeping you grounded is that when you walk into the other room to sit in front of a microphone and talk to an old friend 400 miles away over a wire, through glass and plastic and time and space, there he is. And he's not freaking out. So be cool. Because the only thing holding it all together is the shared experience of it. Unless, unless he's from the other place. Unless, unless he's one of them. My name is Bob, sitting across the way from my good friend and co-host. That's Abe. How you doing tonight, Abe? Doing well, Bob. Here we are. Lori's not here. There's no Lori tonight. Tardy. Just you and me. Okay. Not tardy, just not coming. Not a Absence reader is the of word words, you're looking for. is she? 
Uh, she reads words. There's words on like Instagram posts sometimes, <laughs> right? They they put the the words over there. No, she uh, she's not big on fiction uh, or science fiction, so she didn't want to join us for the talk tonight. She'll be playing video games or something in the other room. It is uh, interesting. Uh, Lori has uh, suffered through a lot of political talk, but a book did her in. She's not here. Fuck it. Which I don't know how I'll perform tonight without without an audience. Oh, yeah. As we, as everyone knows, if I don't have an That's audience. Right. <laughs> By the way, uh, this is totally unrelated to anything, but um, Bill Ma... This is a Content Ma episode. We'll be discussing Philip oh, K. Dick's yeah, yeah, Ubik. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you haven't read that yet, go away. You had a good like three weeks to back. know. But um, speaking of the whole audience thing, so Bill Maher, he returned to the audience format because for a long time on HBO, he would have these fake scenes where like he would make his stupid jokes, and then there would be like some right. He was just on a on a green screen or right, whatever right. with a fake background, so this, and then he'd right pipe in the canned laughter. Right, and it, yeah. and it's like. Very obvious. Like he's not he's not trying to disguise it or anything like that. But uh this past week he actually had in studio actual guest in studio, like a good like fifteen, twenty audience members. And so he would do his you know he he kinda bats about fifty fifty, if that, right? And so like that what it's very what, <laughs> generous. It depends on I mean fifty fifty like over the course of the entire night. Yeah, maybe. maybe. But like right. For the first ten minutes, yeah, it's, uh, he's batting like maybe two hundred. What's weird, I would imagine. I don't know how the show works, but I would imagine the open and the close are where all the writers come in, and the rest of the stuff is just Bill Maher doing his shtick, right? So you think at the right. top, like because like usually his essay at the end is at least well crafted, even if you don't agree with what he's saying. At least it's well constructed. But the opening monologue, there's a there are a lot of duds, like. As if it's like a daily, like, you know, like Jay Leno, like if you're doing it every night, you're not, they're going to be some clunkers, right? But this is just a right. weekly show. You'd think he'd have a lot of hits, but he would do his jokes in front of the 20 member audience or whatever. And, uh, he wasn't getting the same reaction as the fake canned audience. And, and, I, <laughs> and it almost looked like he was like regretting, maybe we should go back to the way. He always looks like he's regretting. Like I've never understood uh, obviously, instead of doing the Philip K. Dick book, we're just going to talk about uh, <laughs> Bill Maher's lengthy career as a television personality. Just- but he's never seemed comfortable as – like I've seen a couple of his stand-up specials, I guess, through the years, and they're fine. Like he's not particularly funny right. or anything. But, but, but he he's a like, type. Like you know what to expect from him. So like he's kind of like a- – Right, and what I expect out of those first eight minutes is to fucking hate it. And right. like for none of the jokes to be any good, for them to <laughs> be barely Leno level. Like one joke that's either really funny or so bad that it's funny. But like usually he'll have one that's like, that is terrible, and you laugh, or like, okay, that was actually pretty funny. But yeah, it's a very low batting average at the open. Right. Anyway. Uh, so we'll see how you do audience less, you know. Maybe you'll uh, regret that uh, Lori's in there either, you know. Yeah, well, she doesn't ever laugh at any of my jokes. So it's fine. I'm sure I'll feel much the same. Hey. Yes. Philip K. Dick, one of my favorite writers. He wrote some gross number of novels uh, and 120 or 140-something short stories along the way. And 
I had not read Ubik before now. I've read most of his other high-profile books. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Blade Runner, that was based on a the best, probably, Philip K. Dick book, just in terms of idea meets execution. Right. Uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Yeah. Which is a really wonderful book. He's written other books. Flow My Tears, the policeman said. There's two different Amazon series, one of them based on his short stories called Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. And then there's another series called The Man in the High Castle, that, which is wait, about... That, that was him? That's Philip K. Dick. Look yeah, that at is... Dick. Wow, all right. Did you watch that? I watched the first season. I like the book better, which I usually don't say. I prefer usually... You read The Man in the High yes. Castle without realizing that it was Philip K. Dick. I don't know who's doing what a lot of the times. <laughs> I, I, You know, like, uh, this is not a uh, format people or like, a, my thing is, no matter what, I separate the art from the artist, and I generally will shit on the artist to kind of separate from the art, you know? So, like, I don't know who writes these things. I don't care about this Philip guy, but, like, I wasn't, I didn't make the connection until now. That was him. Good for him. Yeah. He, yeah by the way, stuff. is he, uh, is he still alive? No, he died in 1983, I think. Like Something a year like after I was born. 1982, maybe. Maybe the year, the year you were born. Wow. Maybe sure. I killed him. Maybe we, you know, we switched places. Maybe you are him. <laughs> <babe>. <laughs> he was a prolific writer until I took over. <laughs> then <laughs> there was. That's right. <laughs> Things fell apart. Uh, let me see. I, at the end of the book. It said that uh, he lived mostly in California and he was born in 28. So if he died in 83 or 82, not a very long life. No, he wasn't particularly long-lived. He didn't live a particularly healthy was he, life. Was uh, he on the sauce and like doing drugs and stuff? I don't know if he was a drinker. He probably was at some point at least a drinker. He was He was doing all sorts of weird drugs. He did amphetamines. He said in some interview, he said that he had not written anything pre-1975 without being on amphetamines. So, so, so is, that, is that why he like, worked the amphetamines thing in the book that we're going to talk about? Because there was like a whole thing where it's just like casually he's like, oh, I can get this for free. It's like at the moratorium. I can just get a little Right. They're just handing out Yeah. Like what is pills. this? Like yeah. is this normal? Yeah, that's actually one of the more interesting things about the book is the list of things that are free in the right. future versus the list of things that cost you money in the future. You have to pay money to open doors, but not amphetamines. Apparently, that's <laughs> not any door, not just any door, but the door to your apartment. You need to slide <laughs> a nickel in. By the way, I, I know we're just jumping, but that's a fire hazard. You can't, you can't be asking people for money. Right. What if there was a fire? I took a. Uh, in college, well, not actually, I didn't take it in college. My favorite teacher at Georgia, a guy named Reg McKnight, who I think is still teaching, presumably, he's not that old, he taught a summer seminar on Philip K. Dick, and I was permitted by him to sit in. And that was my, so I'd read a couple of his stories, and, and I think probably just Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep before that summer, back in like 2011 or 2012, maybe? I'm not sure. So this is your uh, second helping of University of Georgia. This was not like your first go-around. In fact, I, I think when I took this Dick seminar class for that summer, I because I got my diploma in 2011, I think. Seven years so after I was just, you should have gotten it. 
Well, what is should? Remember, uh, <laughs> remember I, know, I know we've compared you to The Rock and other people, but like, remember Bernie Mac? He <laughs> he was like Mr. 3000. Yeah, I remember and, Bernie and, Mac. And then, yeah. like, it turns out like he was like a few hits shy, and then he had to go back. I imagine that's you. Like, you, you basically should have finished your uh, collegiate career in the mid aughts, and then it turns out you were a few credits short, and you circled back in 2011. I did, yes. And. As far as I know, I mean, I'm, that might be an honorary degree that they sent me. I've never really inspected <laughs> my finer points. I think they were just tired of dealing with me over at the bursar's <laughs> office or whatever. Uh, but it came in the mail, and I officially graduated. There you go. So. And you have used the it fools. to your full, full potential sense. I mean, it's been like... Right. <laughs> I mean. Anyway, when that class started, my uh, McKnight, he told a story. He used to tell this story about walking through the bowels of the Atlanta airport with his daughters. And he was a wonderful, he's a writer. He's a wonderful storyteller. And the way that he told it, and I don't know if he is telling us a story or if he's feeding us a pile of bullshit to set the tone for the class, you know, like, but that's what a good teacher does. The latter. Right, maybe. Um, But he talked about it in a way that he and his daughters experienced a loss of time that they were walking through the basement. If you've ever been in the Atlanta airport before they finished it with all of the art installations and the various screens, of course, that are now everywhere, you could walk from terminal to terminal instead of taking the train. And it was weird, especially if you were going from like the T gates to the other gates, it was a very long walk. What and what he, was there before the art installations? Like nothing, just like a, like walking down an empty warehouse tunnel or something. Uh. There was just concrete walls and gray floors. And He told the story as though he and his daughters were walking through the airport and somehow lost six hours of their day in one trip that felt like it took five minutes. And they were walking from one end of the airport to the other. And something that should have taken 10 or 15 minutes, they look at their watches and all of a sudden it's much later in the day. And he used that to illustrate the ways in which reality can kind of be ripped away and you can experience it either alone or with a couple of people and you just have no explanation for it later. And yeah, sometimes drugs help with that He was doing drugs situation. Uh, during this he time? wasn't okay. doing drugs now, at the time and neither, neither were his adolescent children. Typi- but typi- that- typically, the only occasion where there is some sort of slippage of time is when you're going to sleep, right? I mean, eight hours is never eight hours, right? It's usually pretty quick. But like, if you're conscious and sober, it's a rare opportunity where you lose track of time to that degree. I mean, you may lose like an hour or two, you know, just shooting the shit. But like, you don't miss. It's kind of hard to have six hours of slippage if you're conscious and sober. Maybe. Yeah. Who knows? But, you know, everybody's got their own – you used to talk about seeing shadow people, for example. Everybody's true. got their own yes. experiences of the world that don't always line up with right. what we would commonly understand as reality. Right. And I think that the closest that I get to these experiences of sort of terrified encounters with the possibility that what I'm used to experiencing is somehow false, that there's some sort of – mask over everything is in fact in dreams or sleeping right. or whatever right? right or or even occasionally in the experience of art or something like that when your your consciousness has been transported in some way i wrote about this on my website writing about 
a different Philip K. Dick thing, and I'll just read from that real quick. All right, so I, I describe this whole dream, and I say, the next day, clear of the dream, my rational, unterrified mind is perfectly willing to write off the experience as the weird detritus of a consciousness that I'll never fully understand. Philip K. Dick, on the other hand, I think would see a potential tear in the seams of reality itself and seek to exploit it. Where my instinct is to patch the seam in order to rejoin the shared hallucination that is the real world, full of other real and hallucinating minds, PKD sticks his hands in and rips, seemingly of the belief that there is truth, or at least something more real underneath. Whether reading his work is a trip into a more true, shared, crumbling reality, or just an exploration of his own fractured, amphetamine-kicked mind doesn't matter. Wherever they exist, I too have seen the seams, and PKD's stories are always compelling ways through. Um, and whatever else you can say about this book, at the very least, it is an interesting trip through the mind of someone picking at the seams of reality, right, I think. Right. Uh, maybe we should try to sum up the plot as best we can. Yeah. The year is 1992, which is at the time of this book being written, some 25 years or so. Right, this was like, what, late 60s future. that this was written? So Published in 1969, yeah. Uh, and written as a future of 1992, which was very optimistic, or I mean, and pessimistic, I guess, in very profound right. ways. But in terms of the progression of technology and the not progression of fashion, yeah, uh, very optimistic. Right. He thought that all of the crazy bright colors of 1960s upper middle class clothing would still be ubiquitous in the oh. in the world of 1992. Ubiquitous, not. Uh, yeah. I did do it, didn't I? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so he got the fashion wrong. There was many more torn and dirty jeans and gross T-shirts in 1992, as I remember right. it, and w way fewer cummerbunds did, and did, in bright neon colors. Did grunge begin in 92 or like a year before? We were well into grunge by 92, yeah. I think, certainly as a fashion situation. Yeah. Anyway, so the year is 1992. There are all sorts of psychically functioning human beings out there in the world. We have people who can see the future, people who can move things with their minds, people who can – what else can they do? They can see into other – they can figure out what other people are thinking. Right. Uh, different, various, yeah, different skill sets. Right. So there's a whole group of those people out there operating in the world. And then we have a group of people who are able to counteract right. those – uh, psychic abilities, and those are our heroes. Those are our protagonists. There's a a guy named Glenn Runsider who runs an organization that lends out these people who are able to counteract the effect of psychically active people. Uh, he runs a firm, basically, that will sell you the use of somebody who can stop psychic attacks right. because apparently that's a problem in the future. So it, it seems like the ones with the skill – are using it for no good, and then these others, they can kind of counteract it or offset whatever psychic powers these other people have, right? So it's like you pay them a fee. Right. You know. It's almost like a it's almost like a privacy freakout thing, right? right? The way that Runsider is selling his services is, aren't you fucking sick and tired of the psychic spies invading your brains right. and stealing all your corporate secrets right. and or otherwise fucking with you? It's like basically runs in my estimation. I thought it was run sitter, but all right, we'll go with your uh, pronunciation. Run cider. It's almost kind of like a McAfee. Like 
it's like these things are right. like viruses, and they're like, all right, you just buy my shit, and you'll be good to go. Can't we go with a less insane comparison than John McAfee? McAfee the product, not McAfee the one that likes to have shit on him by prostitutes. So someone, this is a brief aside, someone that I know. Is into that? Someone that I know <laughs> is, I don't know how to say this without seeming really weird. You can't just go with it. McAfee apparently might have murdered someone's Someone who I know's father. What? In like no kidding. In, yes, in in Puerto Rico, there was a dispute about by the dogs. Way, how is this an aside? <laughs> well, by the way, this guy may have killed somebody I know. Holy shit! I mean, I don't want to have fucking McAfee coming after me, but <laughs> by the way, he was being investigated for the murder of my friend's dad. McAfee, <laughs> just if you do come after. There. Bob is in. Sh- I-, I live in Atlanta. I'm a different guy. Don't come after me. I'm not accusing him of anything. Ah, sure. I'm just noting. I'm noting that there have been press reports about John McAfee being investigated for the murder of his neighbor. Wow. His neighbor happens to have been someone who I, the father of someone that I used to. Oh no shit! With. Nobody's looking into this. They're just like, ah, fuck it. It happened. The guy's a fucking. Literal pirate now. He like rides around on boats with large guns. Like McAfee is, is that it? Outside, Kill somebody? He's outside a the bounds of the, the law. Well, I would love to <laughs> yeah. get him, but look at him. He's got a boat. Can't go after that. Anyway, guy. getting back to the story. <laughs> Runsider runs this association that lends out these psychic cancelers, basically. Also, something that is going on in this world is that people, when they die, can be basically put on ice and you can communicate with them in some sort of like half life like like a purgatory right, kind of so state? it's called right it's called half life they exist only in their own subconscious it seems none of this is explicitly spelled out or anything but basically they live in a mortuary that's more like a morgue and when you want to go talk to them you can go to this place and they will wheel out your loved one and attach a wire to the coffin right. and another wire to your ear, and you commune with right. them subconsciously somehow. You know how there's uh, the do not resuscitate DNR? Yeah. If this technology, if this were available to me, I would. I, I do not half-life. Like, if I die, don't bother with... I don't want to have any sort of chit-chat with you after the fact. Just let me die in peace. Right. Like, I don't want to do this whole thing. Hey, hey, bro, you got uh, molested by... Have any advice for me, buddy? <laughs> you got molested by a bear and died. Abe, I'm, I'm launching a new website, an associated podcast. What the, got any tips? Abe's like, yeah, idiot, get one that's not blocked on Facebook, you dumbass. Domains are like $10 each. Just get a new one. And they, they don't live forever in this half-life state. So I would take great offense if you wasted your uh, what few moments I had left on your logistical issues. On my, my petty website <laughs> concerns? Yeah, it seems shitty. Especially if, like, this was your beloved wife who you're going <laughs> to, like, right. hit up for business advice. Anyway. <laughs> Runsider's having problems. The opening scene of the book is basically him flying over to Zurich and dialing up his dead wife and trying to get advice from her. And her sage advice for how to deal with the business problem is to just run more That's television right. ads. <laughs> Which, 
I don't know if Dick is being mean to the poor dead woman on purpose, but well, that's some shitty advice. Anyway, so while you have this, can I say something just a, a big picture? Yeah. So a long time ago, I realized I'm not a, a fast enough reader to read both fiction and nonfiction. So I committed a long time ago to be heavy on nonfiction, just like just real life stories about things, right? Because I thought that. I mean, I'm not as slow a reader as our president, right? I can read a little bit faster than he can, but like, but I'm not like one of these like I can just like pick up a book and finish it. So it's like, if I'm gonna direct my energy on something, I don't want it to be some fluffy fiction bullshit, right? About oh, I'm a princess and whatever, right? So I would rather read. <laughs> I mean, that's a terrible <laughs> example, but you know what I mean. Like these fiction stories are, you know, a whole lot of. There are more ways, Abe, to impute <laughs> truth than simply through reading journalism and that history. Been, I'll have you know. That had that not been my experience. But anyways, I kind of got bogged down with all of these nonfiction books to where I didn't like reading books anymore. And I told you that I had read half of the book like last week and then I finished up this week. But like halfway through the book, I was like, I missed this. Like reading fiction is actually fun. Like and it's like a right. change of pace. It was I would look forward to reading it, even if it like science fiction is not my bag, generally speaking. But even so, I welcomed it. This is like this is I'm gonna I'm gonna go, I'm gonna revise my uh, position, and I'll do. Some- so I'm not a big fan of hard science fiction. Uh, the this this most hardcore science fiction people would call soft science fiction. Because he's not explaining how any of this bullshit works. Is that what makes it hard? Yeah. Like hard science fiction, you would expect a complete rundown of the physics behind. This is the world that I'm building. Okay. And the biochemistry behind why half-life works. Okay. And Philip K. Dick is like, "Uh, this is just a fucking weird-ass idea I had. So I'm going to assume that it works in this world. And I'm not going to tell you why. It has to be at negative 113 degrees Fahrenheit specifically. Well, okay. Uh, if, if that's true, then does that also apply to the book, that movie we watched, 2000 and whatever? Like, he didn't do a lot of uh, hand, hand-holding with the explanations. Like, is that also like a soft science fiction book? Certainly in movie, in movie form, it's definitely more of a soft science okay. fiction. I think in the book, I haven't read a lot of Arthur C. Clarke, but I think that he, he does tend more towards explaining in a technical way how X, Y, and Z is supposed to work. Okay. So, like, uh, the last one that I read that was, like, one of these things was, like, that Ender's whatever match or game or whatever. Yeah, that is even more like opera, right? That's more like uh, fantasy, just it happens to have spaceships in it, I think. That's more like space opera stuff than it is even science so what, fiction. Although what, I, I have I have not read Orson Scott Card, so I could be completely talking out of my ass. What's a good on example that. of a hard science fiction book? Less like a popular, not some bullshit you read a long time ago, but just like a popular. Because I'm trying to make a distinction here. Like, what is a? So, in the way that I'm talking about it, something like The Martian is a really good recent example. Okay. Where the guy who wrote it, Andy Weir, does everything in his power to explain why. When Matt Damon shits in a bag and then plants it on Mars, it's potato. all going to produce potatoes. Right? Okay. Okay. That, 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 that's a perfect example. But Arthur C. Clarke is another one. Um, if anybody's seen that Netflix show, Altered Carbon, that's based on something by uh, For what it's worth, Richard Morgan. The first uh, season was pretty decent. The second one, not so much. 
I couldn't get Laurie to watch it, so I never watched it. But yeah, Philip K. Dick is not that. Uh, Vonnegut is another example of somebody who wouldn't be anywhere near the realm of hard science fiction. Basically, they just talk purely in terms of they're philosophers. Right. They're not they're not science writers in any way. They're just using those ideas to communicate other ideas about life and philosophy and whatever. Going back to the plot, we have Run Sider goes, talks to his wife. Wife says, run more ads. Everything will be fine. Um, But also, as he's leaving, as he's trying to finish up his conversation with his wife, she becomes overtaken. Her, Her spirit or her mind or whatever is sort of shuffled off to the side and this other character shows up, this character called Jory. And all we know in that moment is that for whatever reason, uh, when all of these people are housed in a in close proximity to one another in these mortuaries, they sort of have a shared experience right. of the afterlife, right. and they sort of leak into one another. Right. There's some interference. And Runsider heads back home, and the next chapter picks up with a different point of view, which is actually, and I want to talk about that in the very first chapter, which is that the, there's a point of view shift that if you're not reading carefully, doesn't make any sense. And it's just like two pages in. So we start and it's Runsider being woken up in the middle of the night by somebody letting him know that one of the psychics that they're keeping track of, because he's one of the most powerful and dangerous psychics in the solar system or something, uh, has disappeared off the map. They can't find his electronic signature, his psychic electronic signature out there any longer. And because this big bad thing happened, Runsider gets woken up in the middle of the night. And so all of that, the first two pages are from his point of view. And then he says, not in Switzerland, Runsider says with a grimacing smile, as if some repellent midnight fluid had crept up into his aged throat. Good eve, Runsider hung up. And then without a page break, without a line break, like we just go into the very next paragraph with no indication that anything is changing, we shift to the point of view of the guy who runs the moratorium, a continent away, a whole ocean away. And it completely like, it takes you a second to realize, wait a second, everything has changed. And I didn't even get like a little tilde in the middle of the page to tell me that the point of view was going to right. change. It took a second to kind of to find my traction with the story because like they do this change of perspective and then at the beginning of each chapter and subsequent chapter they do some sort of weird commercial about this thing, right? So it's like what the hell is going on? It takes a while to kind of like okay, you're doing a thing. But like the first couple of chapters it took me a while to kind of find my rhythm. Okay, I can kind of see what you're doing and then went from there. Right, and then so Runsider's uh, visit finishes, and we jump to the third chapter. So now we're three chapters in, and we have a third distinct point of view, which is we're now with uh, Joe Chip. And Joe Chip is a classic PKD protagonist. He's like down on his luck. He's sort of dirty. He's sort of dumb. Right. Uh, but he's still like a – he's a man's man also. Like he's a – he's – He's a mess. He's constantly in debt. He doesn't have any money. He can't even pay to open his own front door. But he's also professional and capable. And So in, in that other movie with the replicants, the messy whatever was Harrison Ford? 
Like, so if they made yeah. if they made this as a movie, it would be some, like, heartthrob like him. Like, even though it should be somebody, like, some... It should be somebody dumpier. Right, yeah. But, right. yeah. Somebody who's more of a mess. Right. Somebody like, uh, I don't like, know, who could play Joe Chip. Steven Root. Movies. What was that Root guy? Like, that he could do it, you know? Yeah, Steven yeah. Root. The guy from, uh, have you seen my stapler yeah, or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and also he's uh, in some other stuff. Like, I think he was, like, on Barry on HBO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he could yeah. do a, a pretty right. decent Joe yeah. Chip. That would be good. But they, I mean, I, I think you're right about like they're, they're the through line with uh, the the protagonist in that this Dick guy's uh, books. So like, it should never be Harrison Ford. Anyway, you talked about the uh, commercials at the top of each chapter. The commercial at the top of chapter three says. Instant Ubic has all the fresh flavor of just brewed drip coffee. Your husband will say, Christ, Sally, I used to think your coffee was only so-so. But now, wow. <laughs> Safe when taken as directed. I do love that uh, it's so, I mean, this is what, late 60s that it was written. But like, I do like how right. he, he's got the essence of these things. You exaggerate at the top and then at the bottom, you're like, ah, follow the instructions or you'll die. I want to, I would love to be the person who got to record the audio book yeah. for this just so that I could do the commercials. They're fun. Anyway, so we we invade Joe Chip's apartment. We we're now in his point of view. He's got a hangover. He doesn't have any money. He doesn't he's not entirely sure what happened last night. And he dials up the homeopape machine for the the morning news, which was amusing to me. The things that are free in this world and the things that cost money in this world that Trying to get the shitty morning gossip about your favorite <laughs> celebs and who they're fucking. That's totally right. free. It doesn't cost you anything. Just press a couple buttons and the machine will happily print out utterly worthless entertainment news for you. But if you want to open your fridge to get a get some milk to go with your coffee, the fridge says, I'm going to need a right. dime. If you want any sort of sustenance from the fridge, you got to pay. If you want to leave to get something from your car outside, you got to pay. It's a weird racket. That they have, where you have to pay for certain things. By the way, it should be noted uh, it is a fire hazard to to create obstacles to someone's exit. Well, maybe when there's a fire, it's 1992. Oh, when there's a that, fire, the the door opens by the automatically. Way, by the way, the door a lot of lip, like very. It's it's got a little <laughs> character. It's not like some sort of weird like machine. The door refused to open. It said five cents, please. He searched his pockets. No more coins. Nothing. I'll pay you tomorrow, he told the door. Again, he tried the knob. Again, it remained locked tight. What I pay you, he informed it, is in the nature of a gratuity. I don't have to pay you. I think otherwise, the door said. Look in the purchase contract you signed when you bought this conapt. In his desk drawer, he found the contract. Since signing it, he had found it necessary to refer to the document many times. Sure enough, payment to his door for opening and shutting constituted a mandatory fee. Not a tip. You discover I'm right, the door said. It sounded smug. From the drawer beside the sink, Joe Chip got a stainless steel knife. With it, he began systematically to unscrew the bolt assembly to his app's money-gulping door. I'll sue you, the door said as the first <laughs> screw fell out. By the way, I love that his argument is that this is just like some bullshit formality. Like, I don't actually have to pay you. I was just doing it just as a right. tip. Somebody shows up at Joe Chip's apartment and says, Joe, let me in. I've got this new woman, very powerful right. chick who's going to be able to uh, do work for your firm. And this guy's a headhunter. He goes out and he finds all of the talent. He's a talent scout. 
and he brings them to the firm. He's got to get Joe. Joe is a tester. He's the one who can measure the psychic ability of anybody who he encounters. So he lets them up and makes them pay the goddamn door fee because he doesn't have any more nickels. And they come in, and we're introduced to somebody who we, we only know at this point as Pat. Pat Conley? Is a, so we don't know her last name at so this point? we don't know her last name at this point, and it's not clear. We'll get to that later. But all we know about her is that she's Pat, and she's a smoke show, and she has some sort of an ability. Uh, as you know, Bob, I don't take a public position on cats, but I do use cats for when I'm reading these uh, fiction books, right? And so whenever there is a... For what? Whenever there is an untrustworthy new character, I say, that's the cat, right? <laughs> that's the right. cat. So as soon as she came on board, I was like... What was the formative experience in your life, either in media or in real life? Not important. That led to Again, you. Very limited into what I can say because this is a public forum about cats. But th- that is my position when it comes to. Does this have anything to do? No, this is with a certain gray cat in the year 2009 or 2010. This predates any sort of. Cats of yours. Uh, just are you sure? Generally speaking, I was able to kind of confirm my theories with the uh, what is it? Gray cat. Uh, but it existed beforehand. Anyways, Pat is a cat. So you're telling me? Wait, wait, wait. So you're telling me that in 2009, when you passed out on my ah, couch, puked when I was framed, puked on the floor. <laughs> You're telling me that when Holden, sorry, when Holden framed you by puking on the floor next to your head in such a way as to make it look exactly Exactly. as though you, who had had maybe a little too much to drink the the night before, maybe, to make it look as though an actual human being had thrown up on the floor. Don't prejudice the audience, Bob. This is not what happened. It was a very small... All right, fine. In 2009, my cat framed you. Uh, and puked on the floor right. next to your head right. to make it look like right. you had right. done it. Yeah, that event uh, confirmed what had what. That was not the instigating event. It was a confirmation. Not, it wasn't like the the, the, the origin story. Interesting. Yes. I hope someday in the long, long <laughs> ongoing history of this podcast, we find out <laughs> what anyway, you know, what predated uh, event. Like you, you watch uh, football, right? And then the, the quarterback says, "Who's the, the which linebacker is coming after him?" Like, oh, this guy's the whatever, right? Who's I, who's the Mike? Yeah. No. So that's what I do whenever there's I read these books. That's the cat. Pass that's the cat. cat. That's what I do. So early on, what was that? Chapter three. When did she come on? Chapter three. Yeah, yeah you, the cat came uh, on. Chapter three. It seems like you figured it out. Certainly the. Uh, Pat would be the cat in this yes. particular formulation. Yes. Anyway, so what Pat can do, it turns out, is she can, and it's never explained, but she can go back in time and change the past to affect the future in a way that, to, back to an outcome that she would prefer. Right. This is a unique skill set, by the way, right? So, like, people have the the actual talent, and the other people can negate that talent. But she has some sort of talent that no one else has. That's how it seems. Although they present it as something that is also an anti-talent for precogs, for people who can see the future, right? Because what she and can do. And her parents were that, right? Her parents were. Pre-cogs. So her parents were were both 
precognitives. And what they're able to do is the way it's explained in the book is that they see like a beehive, like a, a, a series of possible outcomes in beehive shape. Right. And they're able to see the brightest hexagon within the beehive is the what they see as the inevitable outcome, right? Right, right. And that's the way that they're able to see the future. And what she's able to do is to go back, change the past so that they never even realize that they've lost their ability. Right. So they still only see the one possible outcome, the only one true outcome. It's just that she's gone back and fucked with the whole timeline such that that is the new outcome right. and they don't remember and, ever having seen anything different. And, and typically I think they, they were talking about how precogs could, could pick up on someone fucking with them, right? So if somebody was like trying to offset their talents, they could pick up on it. But the way she goes about it, that right. is because it would it would gray out right. it would gray out their ability to see which one is right. most likely. And what she does is she just changes what is right. the inevitable outcome. Right. Anyway, but you're right. It does seem to in fact be some sort of other talent. But the firm is going to bring her on ultimately. The way that she demonstrates this talent to Joe is by revealing after he does his initial testing that this is not the first time that he's tested right. her. And so that's that's one of the first mindfuck like classic PKD moments where in one line you think as a reader that I am experiencing this thing that is happening right. and I fully understand what's going on and then like that he's able to tear the rug out from under you but not in such a way that you're disoriented right. it's just that he's completely everything sort of shifts right. and everything turns without you that, that's why the rug thing was a bad metaphor right. but he's basically shifted everything 90 degrees right you're a bit disoriented but you're you're basically whatever the protagonist whatever orientation because like i think this joe fellow he was like married with this uh, cat in a previous iteration of this, right? So like I think he kind of picked up on the fact that this is not the first time this has happened because like she had a ring and she Well, that comes so that comes later. Oh, that's okay. actually so the the very first time is in chapter 3 where she fucks with the timeline because he tests her and he writes out his evaluation and he says okay okay whatever. I, I see okay yeah you're right I don't see anything special right, here right. and that's because his normal testing equipment isn't able to actually pick up on what it is that she's you're doing right. because she has this unique field this unique talent right and so she produces a piece of paper in his handwriting that says exactly that. Like, don't hire her. Right. There's no reason. Like, she's not particularly special. And then she says, but what you're going to do now is you're going to write a new evaluation form. And then she begins to undress herself. Uh, because, right, yeah. Because, uh, I don't know, Dick was feeling horny yeah. that day or something. Conduct but unbecoming. I don't know that she was just getting She takes off all her, all her clothes and feeds 50 cents into the shower so that she can have a shower. And she's basically moved in. Uh, and that, I think that, that part was what, weird. How, like, so I think that what what Chip is doing in that, like, as a character, he's recognized that this is someone who is extremely powerful and extremely dangerous, and it's best to just sort of see where it's going because if he reacts too, if he has too much of an extreme reaction. She's just going to fuck with the timeline again and rearrange okay. things in such a way gotcha. that she's going to get what she wants. Gotcha. So as long as he can keep as strong a handle on reality as he knows it, uh, 
moving forward and trying to keep track of all of the changes that are being made, then I think that that he would rather just go with the flow and try to figure out what her game is than to try to rebel against her. Right. So he's like, I'll, uh, I'll let her undress. I'll see how this uh, plays out. Right. <laughs> Apparently it's not a bad look either. Um, anyway, so his, but he does get one over on her by writing on his evaluation form. He has a special Did he symbol underline code it that he twice uses. or what, what is a symbol? Right. So he, The underlined crosses did not symbolize what he had told her, and what he had told her was uh, that she has unbelievable power and that the two crosses mean double that hire her at whatever cost required. But really, the two crosses meant watch this person. She is a hazard to the firm. She is dangerous. She's a cat. Right. She's the cat. (laughs) And that is our setup. And we go back to New York, and Runsider is in a meeting – uh, one brief aside, what I like about Dick is that he, knowing his process, he writes very, very quickly. And wait, so, wait, wait, hold on. Uh, what do you mean that? Uh, what do you mean by that? Like he, you know, this to be true? Like he wrote this book like in two weeks or something? Or yeah, well, you don't write like forty novels and one hundred and forty short stories over the course of like thirty I or mean, forty active years without just plowing but what, right through. What shit. if he didn't do anything else? He doesn't drink coffee, he doesn't fornicate. Yeah, he did a lot of math he did a lot of oh, math and wrote stories. <laughs> <laughs> that's what he did. Uh, and it's why at times his writing is dreadful and at other times like like I I wouldn't want to change anything about his output. But one wonders if he was just a slightly different sort of writer. What because there are moments of just absolute wonderful poetry in terms of turns of phrase that are just terrific. You would think, and then there are mo- you. You would think if you're like uh, a fast and loose kind of writer, like you would have a couple of good editors that you trust to kind of at moments. Right, clean except up. he was selling these. So he's selling these short stories to magazines for $500 or whatever, right? Like yeah. he's just trying to make rent right. that month right. in 1957 or whatever. Right. And he doesn't care whether or not they're particularly good. Right. And with the novels, he obviously put in a bit more work. Uh, and I'm not saying that they're sloppy, but there are definitely like, if you'd get, if you'd sat it in the drawer for three months and came back to it and reworked it for six months after that, there are moments that would have made more sense. There are things that wouldn't have been quite so silly sounding, right. but whatever. Yeah. And an example of that is that he gave this this character who's a nothing character. He's who Runsider is on the phone with at the beginning of chapter four. He's talking to his public relations representative saying that we need to run more ads because that's what my dead wife said to do. And the name that he gives the character is Tarnish. So the, the guy who's in charge of the public relations department is Tarnish, which is very silly and perfect. And it's the sort of name that you put in as a joke. Right. And then when you go back and rewrite it later, it's it like you yeah, change right, the name. Right, right. It's, right. Like a, it's like a placeholder name, just like a, you know, if you're taking a lot of amphetamines, how can I not say that word? Amphetamines, you would circle back and, you know, clean it up. There's a funny line in the beginning of chapter four where they're talking about the ad that he wants to run, and he Runsider recognizes it, and he says, oh, that's right, Runsider said with satisfaction. He had originally helped write the ad. It was, in his opinion, another manifestation of the marvelous multifacetedness of his mind, <laughs> which is <laughs> I recognize as sort of a 
it feels like a joke that PKD is making about himself, right. where he is in that moment a stand-in for the author, uh, talking about how brilliant he himself is. Uh, but anyway, in chapter four, Runsider is visited by somebody calling herself Miss Wirt. And Miss Wirt is trying to put together a team of, they're called inertials, these people who block the psychic activity of others, which is another wonderful little turn of phrase here. Like they are people who are able to reintroduce inertia. They they sort of, it's, it's a clever phrasing of it, whatever. And so Miss Wirt is working for someone who believes that their firm is under heavy, heavy attack, a heavy, heavy psychic attack, and that they need the best firm in New York, the best firm in the world, therefore, to provide as many anti-psychics as possible to come take care of their problem. Right. So there's a moment here in this chapter that I think might stand out. So it, it's a hint that something is not quite right. And I don't know if Runsider himself doesn't notice it on purpose or if PKD doesn't quite notice it. But Runsider is able to provide 40 well, inertials. Well, befo- before we get to the number, but so initially this uh, works basically presents this as a, as a time-sensitive task, right? It's like right. there's no time to do the actual reading that they would normally do to see how many people it would take. And so it's basically like just figure it out. We'll pay whatever. Time-sensitive. We need to go right now. So it's kind of like right. pressing fuck, the fuck issue. Your consultant, f- fuck your consultant who's going to come along and do a, a test reading right. and – whatever instead just give us everything you've got and we got to do it now and so runsider because he is having a moment in his business where they're they're not working because they can't find any of these psychics happens to have like 40 people that he can put on the job and so he comes up with a a quote for how much this is going to cost and how many inertials he can fork over for the job and it he says it'll be 40 people that i can give you and she like blanches at that and says i'm gonna have to talk to the boss so I didn't – what I don't understand ultimately and what maybe we'll have to circle back to it once we flesh out the rest of the plot is why it makes sense for the person who's demanding that these people come as quickly as possible because money ultimately is no object right, right, in this right. scenario. Yeah, it is inconsistent. Why, yeah. why, why does she say actually we don't want 40, we only want 11? 11 yeah, well, you know, 11 is a good number as it happens. But you're right because basically the whole thing is like no time for any of that. All of your due diligence is going to be wasted on us because we need this now. And then, you know, this run sitter uh, sees an opportunity to, uh, you know, uh, get money out of this. So I was like, well, I guess, you know, I'll throw this many at you. And so we'll need this right. much money. And uh, she's like, oh, I got to run and buy my boss. And uh, they come back with a lesser number. So I was like, first of all, how do you even know how many you need? Because you haven't right. run the test. So it's like, it's kind you of. You don't like, know the size right. of the problem. Yeah. Like, why, why did you say 11? Why not 20? Why not five? Why not 100? You know, like, you don't know what you need. You just need a lot of it. Right. And the only thing that we know about the person that she's allegedly working for, or is in fact working for, as far as she is concerned, because they read her mind and find out what she's actually That's thinking. That's right. The only thing we know about that person is that he has basically bottomless pockets. Right. And he's the biggest mark in the galaxy. Right. And that you can take, you can get money from him. Right. So. Both in terms of that immediate moment and in terms of how later on what we find out is actually going on, I don't know 
I don't fully understand why we go from the 40 inertials to 11 unless it's like one of those like movie things where it's like we're putting together a team and like Ocean's 11 <laughs> and we, we're not going to introduce fucking 40 anti-psychics. Yeah, think, that yeah, would be very right, tedious. Yeah. But we can introduce 11 anti-psychics 11, yeah. and yeah. everyone can be their own character and that that's a that's a workable – we can work right. with that number right. of psychics. You would think then at that point why not just – because like it would not – Nobody would have batted an eye if he's like, 11 will have to do. And then she's like, all right, fine. And that would have been it. Like, instead of, because like, there, there is no justification for why they shaved 30 people. Like, if, if he said, I'm going to put the 11 of my best, and she's like, right. like I said, it doesn't matter. We need the numbers. So we got the money. Let's do it. Then the move, the, the story would have moved along just fine. Like, you don't need to go back and forth. All right. So one other thing that happens in chapter four is that Joe Chip brings Pat to the office uh, to present her to Runsider, and they decide to hire her. And she—I don't know if she demonstrates in that moment exactly what she can do. She does do it in the next chapter, but regardless, so she explains. This is an interesting thing that stood out to me, and I never quite figured it out, and I don't know if it's a key to anything or not. But when trying to explain to Runsider what it is that she can do, yeah, she says anti-ketogenesis. And what's that mean? The prevention of ketosis, the girl said remotely, as by the administration of glucose. Now, ketosis, if... Uh, is this like that keto the diet? Only reason... Right. The only reason that I know anything about ketosis is that that's the keto yeah, diet. Eat fat and die, and, right? Right. Ketosis is a metabolic state in which fat provides most of the fuel for the body. Um, so she is by – what she's saying is that by somehow adding sugar, she's preventing ketosis, which is true in terms of the diet. But I don't know how it's true in terms of – Time traveling psychics. Maybe this is uh, what uh, Philip K. thought 1992 was going to be like. You know, he thought, you know, we'll figure it out. Right, he was ahead of the game yeah. on people being familiar with what the fuck ketosis right. is. But... <laughs> anyway, chapter five, we get another Ubik commercial, which of course we do. E- every uh, chapter, then... by the way, right? Like every right, yeah. And then we're introduced to now a fourth point of view in five chapters. And I'm only pointing that out because that basically goes away after the big instigating event uh, at the end of Act 1 of this book, which is that we go from getting a new point of view basically every chapter to sticking with one or another point of view for the rest of the book after that. Right. So I think that if we're going to decipher this book, and I'm not saying that Figuring out exactly what happened is either possible or desirable. But if you're going to decipher this book in a in a way that makes some sense, if that's what you want to do, it's worth noting that we're getting a different point of view in each of the first five or six chapters. And then that stops after that point. Right. Uh, and the point of view that introduces the fifth chapter is this anti-telepath named Tippy Jackson who's being roused from a nightmare in which she's being confronted by two psychic type people in her dreams. And they're like reading Shakespeare to her in her dreams, which is weird to her because 
she's either never read Richard III or hadn't read it since she was a child and certainly didn't have it on deck to be able to recite it to herself in her dreams. So she thinks that this might, rather than being a dream, is in fact some sort of psychic attack. Right. So basically, Chapter 5 is collecting these 11 uh, inertials who are going to come on this trip. And the trip is turns out to the moon they're going to go to the moon because now, that's the that's that's where this is going on it's called what they call luna right right yeah. so the trip is to the moon base where this guy stanton mick is apparently running some sort of operation that is under psychic attack and it's also in this chapter that out of nowhere we find out that pat's last name is conley okay. pat the time-traveling smoke show who's able to change the past also, and therefore also, affect the future. Also a cat. Also the cat. She is Pat Conley. And that is just one chapter after Joe Chip says, no last name. So he makes the point twice in the first four chapters of saying that Pat doesn't have a last name. And then we're reintroduced to the character as Pat Conley. So what's happened at some point a couple of times is Pat's going back and fucking with the timeline to get the outcome that she thinks that she desires. But it's not made explicit except in the ways that the details change a little bit here and there. So it's made explicit a couple of times where all of a sudden Runsider finds himself instead of in his office, he sort of blinks and suddenly he's on the street in front of like doing some window shopping and he's taken out of his element. And then all of a sudden he blinks again and he's, back in his office right. but it's not quite how he left the right. office he's alone and, and, in his office now and and when these things happen like these characters are aware there's something off like if i were in this book i would be totally fine like i would not pick up on any sort of oh right. this chair wasn't here before well but so the way but the way it's presented is yes they're fine but also in the immediate moment that it happens yeah it's it's as though they're waking from a dream right. or they've 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 just become slightly disoriented right. and then the the longer it goes on the less they remember of having been woken from something that was different right, right? and so the the consciousness just adapts to the new surroundings and it becomes what it becomes the new reality right. and unless you're fighting like really hard and there are moments where Joe Chip like fights r- super fucking hard to try to hang on to the thing that is slipping away so that he can learn something. Right, his his current consciousness, you know, like he doesn't want it to slip into right. something else. Right. And so they go from we go from knowing everything about how this Pat Conley is the most powerful person in the room to after a slight time shift, Runsider is saying, "What talent? You don't have a talent. You're just Joe Chip's wife." And of course we know better and Joe and Runsider also know better because they have that old piece of paper that's got the symbols on it that says, uh, watch out for this trick. Also, it's probably worth at least mentioning here that PKD doesn't do great with women characters. I was about to say, Uh, like, uh, a lot of authors, male authors, aren't very good with the women folk. PKD is also, by the way, PKD sounds like uh, the airport in the... In DeKalb County here, it's PDK, but like, uh, yeah, Uh, but so he's one of them, like he can't write a good... Yeah, I mean, he he doesn't do women real great. I mean, the way that he describes, let me see if I can find it. 
right? So he's describing Runsider's wife early in the book, and this is Ella. El- okay. And he says, how would Ella be able to help him figure it out, he asked himself. Stuck here in this casket, frozen out of the world, she knew only what he told her. Uh, which is an interesting way of, I mean, yes, she's dead, right. but it's also like a weird limitation for an author to put on a female character. Uh, yet he'd always relied on her sagacity, that particular female form of it, a wisdom not based on oh. knowledge or experience, <laughs> but on but on something innate. He had not, during the period she had lived, been able to fathom it. Like she's <laughs> she's got a wisdom. It's not about anything technical, so it's not, but it's, there's something going on there. They, they got a, like a cat almost. There's a certain <laughs> well, that is true. Yeah, I, I did kind of chuckle at that because basically he covered both grounds of what people think of knowledge, which is so she's not school smart and she's not like experience smart, but her smart right. is just like this intuitive woman thing. Right, and the way that he describes, there's another description of. Okay, yeah. So Wendy Wright, who's one of these, I don't know if she's she's anti precog or anti telepath or something. She's one of the eleven who's coming on the trip. She's like a, Wendy a Wright. random entry, right? She's supposed to be like uh, the love interest of Joe. Like, where did that come from? Right. So apparent. What, what I think is going on there is that in some other timeline, Joe and Wendy okay. are together in some okay. way, or in, in maybe multiple timelines, and there's something. Because Pat has inserted herself into this situation in such a weird way, it's because Wendy even at one point is like, she sort of vaguely says, I'm going to marry Joe? She almost like asks the question as though she's remembering something from before. How did that story go again that I'm involved in? Right, like like, I I feel like in this, I'm supposed to marry this guy, but that that can't be right. right. Um, but anyway, when Wendy is introduced, and by, by the, by the way, the reason why casting is important, that line would work for a Stephen Root, great actor. It wouldn't work for Harrison Ford. I'm going to marry Harrison Ford. Like it wouldn't work. Right. You know, like, right. Cause Wendy is apparently <laughs> attractive. It would make sense for her to be like, wait a second. I'm into this guy. Uh, anyway, when Wendy is introduced, it's in terms of how Joe is perceiving her. And so the quote from the book, page 62 in my copy in proximity to her, he felt himself to be a squat, oily, sweating, uneducated nerd whose stomach rattled and whose breath wheezed. Near her, he became aware of the physical mechanisms which kept him alive. Within him, machinery, pipes and valves and gas compressors and fan belts had to chug away at a losing task, a labor ultimately doomed. Seeing her face, he discovered that his own consisted of a garish mask. Noticing her body made him feel like a low-class wind-up toy. And he goes on and on for like twice that long about uh, her presence. And it's a like there's a couple of wonderful lines there in what I just read. But it's also like, I'm here, Wendy said, with soft tranquility. Like this is not a real person right. in the same in the way that Joe Chip is a fully realized character. Right. So, I mean, whatever. That it's It's a problem of the genre. It's a problem of the time. It's a problem of the the author. Arguably, the, the author. Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It's also not at all a problem in terms of me enjoying the right, book. Right, and maybe that's, right. uh, that's Maybe I'm in the shithead. But, but let, me, let me ask you something. These authors of fiction, if there's, like, if they're writing about, like, that Martian guy, that weir, that wiener weir guy, um, if there is some sort of scientific part, like, he basically wants to tell the story, but he's not, like, inclined in this world. 
do uh, do these writers like uh, hire experts in, in certain fields? Like, can you explain to me this part? Because I want to be able to. Right. Well, the, with the Martian guy, I think he researched that book for like okay. four years or something before. So writing why not? It. Uh, like with, I mean, this may be kind of a ridiculous thing to do, but like. This was 50 years ago. Why not hire, like, I don't know, like, I'm Philip K. Dick. My name is Dick. Clearly, I don't know much about women. Let me hire, like, a woman. Uh, what makes you think that Philip K. Dick thought <laughs> that he didn't know much about Come women? Come on, I'm doing the math. <laughs> Philip K. Dick. Hey, not... he was married five times. He that, knew some women. Yeah, he was doing weird things. He's like, dude, <laughs> this is not going to work out. No, I'm not sure that he was self-possessed or had, had the self-awareness to recognize his... The, particular failings the, in that regard. The proof? I'm also not sure that that's at all what he he's not trying. Even with his fully realized characters, the point is not these characters. Right, but, but the proof the is, point in the is pudding, not the though, science right? like, fiction. I mean, the point is not a lot of these characters. But he, if he can f- write, you know, a fully formed male character, many of them. Why is he having difficulty with writing? I mean, how hard is it? So write I don't this think it's First of all, I don't think it's fair to say he can write a fully formed male character. He writes, and I might have said that. Two minutes ago, but they're not—they're relatively fully right. formed. We're not. But this isn't the grapes of I'm wrath. I'm not a woman. We're not, did, we're not, did, you know, right? We're not, right? I'm not a woman, right? So, like, a lot of the stuff he writes about men, it doesn't ring like false, right? It's like I—I I know the schlubby right. guy. No, he's certain, imagine, He's tied to his right. perspective. But like, I would imagine if you're like a woman, you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, this is just like the flimsiest character. Like this, uh, this Wendy, she came out of nowhere. Yeah. She died in a closet? Like, what the hell is going on? She didn't even, like, bone this guy? Get out of here. She's certainly not front and center. She's. I'm not saying it's not a problem. I'm just saying that it's it's so not a problem that he wasn't considering it as a concern at any point along the way. I'm concerned, yeah. And for what it's worth, I'll bet this fucking book passes the stupid Bechdel test at some point. There are Mm. two female characters conversing. But... It can't just be two women talking. They they can't be talking about a dude. Right. They're talking, but they're not talking right. about a dude. I don't know if that's ever happened. Like, oh, Joe, eh? What's know. up with him? Like, I don't think that uh, they would pass it. To anyway, them. moving on here. Now, we've gotten over the woke <laughs> moment of PKD. <laughs> I, uh, I just think you can uh, spruce up your book by hiring some of these women. I'm trying to imagine <laughs> how that would work. Hello there, woman. But... <laughs> what is it that you're into? <laughs> So for me, as a as a writer, Abe, <laughs> the way that I've always tried to do it is to just write the characters as human beings and even going through later and changing the gender of the character and seeing if anything rings false. And so I've done that in fiction that I've written before where I go through and I simply swap the genders of the two characters and see if there's anything that stands out in a negative way about the new female that I hadn't recognized before. You know who does that? And I'm sure who's that? is Aaron Sorkin. Because he writes his women flat. He probably thinks like, oh, interchangeable. C.J. Craig Oh, is he does this. not write his women oh, flat. He, Maybe he, he's got... He, if you, you go watch the fucking West Wing <laughs> and show me... I've a million times. <laughs> one fully formed so, and fully capable woman... On a par with CJ, literally C, any of the men. CJ Craig is like CJ a CJ is a Craig. mess. CJ cannot talk to a man. Not one like, who is, string of episodes in the third season with the, the, the Donovan guy, the, the protectee. 
But other than that, she was on the up and up. I mean, yeah, there was also that reporter. She can't she was... even do a treadmill without falling on her face in the presence <laughs> like of a, a semi-attractive so first dude. Of all, I mean, the other guy, Sam Seaborn, had like a prostitute. I mean, they all had their foibles. But he writes these characters. Right. What is that? So, so that's the, the main female foil in that first season is Sam's hooker right. girlfriend. Who's a right? lawyer. Very and, smart. And the whole goal, right, right. Of course, she's a hooker with a heart of gold who went to fucking law school. Of course, she is, Aaron fucking Sorkin. But what is Sam Seaborn's goal? To have, you know, sexual relations with her. What do you mean? No, to save her. Oh, this is a this is a grown not, woman who's making decisions on her that's own. Right. And, yeah, because she was off the and cl- Sam can't she, can't handle. She was it. off the clock that day, right? Yeah, because he wasn't. Uh, right. Okay, you're right. You're right. Don't go using Aaron Sorkin <laughs> to say that, you know, Sorkin ran this by the Women's Council and everybody cleared it. So. I'm not talking about How a council. You. Just have, you got like a writer, but like you're writing some. He had five wives. I don't know what the problem no, is. Saying, like, obviously, he, obviously, somebody who's had five wives understands women. <laughs> who was that? Uh, uh, <laughs> who was that writer who uh, Reagan loved? A uh, guy. Uh, who wrote those military, like Jack Ryan and all those books, like that guy? Clancy. Yeah. So he, I'm Clancy. sure he like consulted with the military people. He didn't know shit about anything, right? So like, hey, how, how would you write like some sort of ambush? You know, like just do that. Like, hey, woman, right. what are you, what are these uh, women things? Uh, tell me. Man, Clancy is practically unreadable in my <laughs> experience. <laughs> He's got. He had a couple of decent books. Great movies, really. That boring is true. Reads. Yeah, <laughs> that should be like a, a category. It's like, it's like, don't read the source material. Just watch the movie. That guy fetishized military equipment in the same way that Brett Easton Ellis was satirically fetishizing like facial cream in American Psycho, and it was it's too much. Right. But chapter six to circle back to the point of view thing. Chapter six begins on Luna, and it's basically from the third person perspective. We don't have, we're not in anybody's head for the first time in the book. And we, we stay out of people's heads for about half the chapter before we jump into one point of view. And that point of view is Joe Chip. I worry that we're not doing a great job explaining exactly what the fuck is going on. But if you read the book, you're probably keeping up. And if not, I don't know why you're listening. (laughs) In chapter six, they get to the moon and they unpack their shit in the fancy hotel that they're staying in. And there's free drugs if they want them. She gives them coins to operate the entertainment machines if they want them. Courtesy, of course, of their lovely benefactor who's paying all the bills for this expensive thing. And they've brought Joe Chip alone. Runsider is apparently along for the trip as well. So there's Runsider, there's Joe Chip, and there's the 11 inertials, right. including Pat Conley. And... Joe gets out his testing equipment, and Miss Wirt is like, hey, uh, knock it off. We're not doing any testing, you'll recall. And she sends for the boss. She's like, go go fetch Mr. Mick, please, because this guy is trying to do tests. Right. And Mr. Mister Mick shows up, and he's like, hey, you fiddling with the equipment there? Knock it off. Pay attention to me. Big man's talking. And Joe says, uh, no need. I'm all done. There is no fucking psychic right, force field right. happening here on the moon. Now- the only... The only fields that I'm reading are the ones that we brought with right. us. So this is a setup. Now, the way that they presented it initially, or she presented initially, was that there's no because this is such a immediate need that there's no time to do it. But like when they got there, they're like, 
you explicitly cannot test. So then I was like, what right. the hell's going on? Like, this is this is a ruse. Right. It was, and it was, in fact, a ruse. Uh, so Stanton Mick comes in, and he is ex- he is described in a couple of amusing ways. You should notice right away that something is off, in part because he is described as having a squeaky, penetrating, castrato quality to his voice, an unpleasant noise that one might expect to hear, Joe Chip thought, from a hive of metal bees, which is, in fact, unpleasant. <laughs> and... Mick is like, stop measuring this stuff, and uh, Joe and Runsider quickly confer off in the corner, and they're like, uh, there's some real gnarly bad shit about to go down, and we need to get out of here. And Runsider's like, all right, everybody, get your bags and get on the ship. We're leaving. And then, quote, squeaking in his metal insect voice, Stanton Mick floated to the ceiling of the room, his arms protruding distendedly and rigidly. Mr. Runsider, don't let your thalamus override your cerebral cortex. This matter calls for discretion, not haste. He shortly thereafter explodes. Turns out he was some sort of a bomb. Right. Like a suicide bomb? Some sort of suicide auto-destruct bomb that floated to the ceiling and then exploded. And the next thing we know, we are completely in Joe Chip's POV again, and he's... Hearing one of the anti-psychics tell him they killed Runsider, Mr. Chip. That's Mr. Runsider pointing at a body laying there. And they check Runsider and he's mostly dead. But everyone else seems to be okay. Uh, So a bomb goes off in the ceiling of this conference room in their hotel room that they're staying in. And everybody's okay except for Mr. Runsider. And they rush Runsider through the hotel back out to the ship. And they manage somehow, there's no backup plan for assassinating these 11 psychics and their handlers. They manage to get on the ship and head back to Earth, putting Runsider into the ship's cold pack facilities to prepare him uh, for half-life. Right. uh, Curiously, they were allowed to escape without further incident. You would think that they would have some sort of, the explosion should take care of most, if not all of them. But in case it doesn't, let's have a cleanup crew to come up. You know, basic military kill people strategy, you know, follow up and kill the rest. Before they're on their way, a couple of the the people are like, hey, let's use that fucking neat trick that Pat has. That's right. Where she can go back and uh, fix this shit before the bomb explodes and we don't come to the goddamn moon and get our, our dear leader assassinated. And she says, it's too late now, Pat said. Why? That's it. Too much time has passed. I would have had to do it right away. And that doesn't appear to be remotely true. Right. The way that we understand her power works, it, it doesn't seem to necessarily be the case that she's able, that she is for some reason unable to go back and fix things. You know uh, you know what I thought, Bob, when uh, that Wh- scene happened? Huh. What's that? Interesting cat. <laughs> Must be the cat. Interesting behavior. Yeah. Anyway, so they get on the ship, they put him in cold pack, and they are off back to Earth. I also think it's interesting to note here that in the first six chapters of this book, Runsider is not presented as a particularly great man. No. Right, right, right. right. Like, he's he's a capable man. Right. He's able to do stuff. He's obviously been successful in his life. He built this business, and right. he's... Whatever. He's 
he's doing work. But he's for whatever reason, there are from this point forward, when Joe Chip thinks of Glenn Runsider, he thinks of him in terms of elevating him to an almost deistic level. Right. The way that they talk about how great Glenn Runsider was. And at first I thought maybe we're just working with you know, you, when somebody's dead right. and the immediate uh, uh, rose-tinted glasses come down. and You know, there, there's always a, a death pump, bump, you know, like how sometimes with presidents or some tragic event right. happens, yeah. their numbers go up a little bit, you know. So it's like, oh, he's dead. You're going to have to say something nice about him, you know. I don't – right. And that was the first thought. I don't think that's what was ultimately what's going on here. Uh, anyway, they head to Zurich to put our boy Runsider – on ice so that they can start communing with him to figure out what it is they should do next, which is is like wildly depressing to think that this guy who's apparently been alive for in excess of 120 years or something like that. We don't get a firm handle on how old Runsider is, but he's got a body full of false organs that have been like he's got artificial organs that have been replaced. I, I wasn't aware he was alive for the. Is that is that a thing? Like I have to decide that some old schlub, be like you know, sixty year no, old. No, no, they. So you know, he's very old and older had than, had all of his older than the regular old. Yeah, older than old, old like unnaturally aged. Oh, I didn't pick up on that. I was too busy with the cat. There was like, a, was there right. a scene about? Oh man, I got to take a old man shit. Like, what was the the clue? <laughs> no, they, they mentioned it a couple of times uh-huh. that he's had all of his all of his organs replaced with artificial okay. organs, and he's okay. they they say something about how you don't even notice once you're over ninety anymore. You can't tell how old anybody is. That you basically stop aging at ninety, and everybody looks the same. Okay, but I th- I want to say he was like a hundred. So wait a minute. But- uh, so. If that's true, and his uh, old lady who is uh, half dead, she was in her 20s. How long has she been in right. her 20s? Right. I don't know. That's not made okay. clear. Okay. Okay. Also, I want to I note here that the, the name of the ship that they ride to go do this very important mission is called the Prattfall 2. <laughs> which is not what you want to name your important mission ship. What uh, happened to the first after, one? You don't want to name it after falling on your ass. That's a bad idea. But, but another, another one of those, like, <laughs> I'm going to call this ship the Prattfall, right. he said, after <laughs> popping another blue pill. And then, like, you know. You never go back and fix it, but whatever. Although, I mean, if if I were very rich, I would name my boat the Unsinkable, you know, just to see what happens. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to guarantee the inevitable. Yeah. <laughs> so they get back to Zurich, and they are... So, by the way, just to be clear, in at this point, everybody but Runsitter is alive. Yes, we're meant to believe at this... We're, the way that it is being presented is that... Joe Chip and all of the anti-psychics are alive. All of the inertials survived the blast, but uh, their dear leader did not. Right. Old man finally dies. Right. And they go and they hook him up, and it turns out that they can't get a reading from him. They are unable to install him in Half-Life. He's too far gone or something so like because that. They, they weren't able to get his body into the cold pack or whatever it's called in time? Right, that's how it's explained. Yeah, right? okay. The mortuary guy suggests that they just, sometimes it's a no. Right. Most of the time it's a yes, but sometimes it's a no, and in this case, it was a no. Right. 
So what begins to happen now with Joe, and this is all basically from Joe's perspective from this point on, is that Joe begins to experience the world deteriorating around him. He goes to light a cigarette and the cigarette crumbles into a dry heap, basically. It's a stale, old cigarette. He tries to use a phone book and it turns out it's an outdated by two years right. phone book. He tries to order a coffee from an automatic coffee machine and the coffee comes out and it's covered in a filthy, slimy thing on the top and the the cream has soured and just there's something not quite right about this world that they came back to. At this point, they, is he... Is his uh, currency considered funny money? Like it's out of circulation? Right. He or? tries to spend some money and it, the vid phone machine spits it back out and says that can't take your right. bogus money. Uh, and there's just something not quite right about this world that they've come back to. And their hypothesis in the moment is that somehow this weird blast, this weird bomb on the moon – quickly aged them or something like it, it fucked with their right. personal timelines right. in some way. And of course, what we're thinking as readers is that Pat, the cat is up to no good. Mm, that's, you know who was thinking that me, right? Is that there must be Pat must not be in full control of her abilities in some way, or, right? Where she or keeps, she's on the take, you know, cause uh, the way she was presented, right. you know, right. But either way, what, whatever she's doing is both notice, possibly noticeable uh, because she's been presented as the turd in the punch bowl here. And so we're going to be, as readers, we're going to be quick to blame her for anything that's going wrong with right. our protagonist's situation. Right. So Joe Chip goes and he's got to get his mind right. And so he's just going to spend the night in a hotel room while everybody else goes back to New York. And he's going to settle up the affairs in Zurich the next day. And there's a weird thing where he's going to, like, invite Wendy over oh. uh, for the evening. And that is also not made entirely clear as the why beyond the obvious uh, prurient reasons. Right. He wakes up the next morning and Wendy's not there and it doesn't seem like she ever got there. And then he, like, opens the closet and there's a dried up husk of a human being in there. Like, literally, it's just, like, weird brown wisps of what used to be Wendy. Right. And it seems bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But the way it's described, and I will find the passage here, but it's basically like she, as though the life, as though time itself had sucked the life from her. And I'll try to find the You know, the uh, while you're looking for the passage, uh, if I had woken up to that and I saw somebody in that state, I would think that, I killed them, you know? So I'd be, like, covering it up. I'd be calling people. So you're saying if you woke up after a maybe a few too many... Just, yeah, like a lapse in time, and then And there's a, there's a dead body yeah, in the closet. I'm like, well, here you go, Abe. You've done it again. Abe, I, I know for a fact <laughs> that you would just find the nearest cat to, to try to pin it on. So. You know... <laughs> Let's not pretend that I, you would I, take the I, fall. I, I would, but it, I do. I, I do realize that in the court of law, that would be a big uh, hurdle to climb. Like, <laughs> look at that cat; <laughs> they did the thing. 
On the floor of the closet, a huddled heap, dehydrated, almost mummified, lay curled up, decaying shreds of what seemingly had once been cloth covered most of it, as if it had, by degrees, over a long period of time, retracted into what remained of its garments. Bending, he turned it over. It weighed only a few pounds. At the push of his hand, its limbs folded out into thin, bony extensions that rustled like paper. Its hair seemed enormously long, wiry and tangled. The black cloud of hair obscured its face. He crouched, not moving, not wanting to see who it was. But yeah, so this is not a normal death. Whatever happened to Wendy, right. it was not in the normal course of events. And Joe is beginning to think that there's something else going on here, obviously. Right. Uh, he's got stale cigarettes, an out-of-date phone book, obsolete money, putrefied food, Weird ads on his match folder, like from Rens- from Runsider himself, as though. Oh, that's right. Yeah, like as if it's like a live read where he's like, "Yo, what's up?" Right. Yeah. And then this uh, mummified, dried out husk of a human body that just the day before was Try- uh, his vibrant, yeah, young former fiance or something. He was trying to bone her, and and she ended up bone. There it is. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> all right chapter nine starts off with another ad my hair is so dry so unmanageable what's a girl to do simply rub in creamy ubic hair conditioner in just five days you'll discover new body in your hair new glossiness and ubic hairspray used as directed is absolutely safe which is uh after the description of the corpse pkd it's not right. not very right. tasteful to right. then go to a a hair ad. But, you you, you, know, you got to reset, you know. To sort of blow through Act Two here, because it is sort of repetitive, right. but basically it's just Joe and a couple of the other psychics trying to do some detective work like to figure out what Al? the fuck is going Who's on. Who's the other guy? Al. He doesn't. Right. Yeah. Al Hammond, yeah. who gets a couple of uh, racial slurs thrown his way because yes. that's. Oh, just, he's a black fellow. He's a black guy. Mm. Uh, J- Joe, our hero, angrily calls him an Uncle Tom, which is. <laughs> Which is unfortunate. Yes. But, you know, it's, uh, he's a man of his time, That's 1992, right. and yeah. that was cool then. It's a tough period. <laughs> so what ends up happening is that Joe finds himself increasingly further back in time, it seems like, right? Right. So he travels to his apartment at one point. Okay, and actually we should talk about what happens to Al Hammond because it's a clue, I think. What happens to Al Hammond is that Al, when they're – they go to Baltimore. There's a funny line about Baltimore. I have to find the funny Baltimore line. Hang on. Is this where they uh, went to the, the, the grocery store? Right. Or whatever store it was. I'm leaving this building for a while, Al said. Think of a city or a town at random. One that none of us have anything to do with. One where none of us ever go or have ever gone. Baltimore, Joe said. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to shit on Baltimore. <laughs> They have a random place where you don't want to go, where we've never gone, and we would never have anything to do with otherwise. You, you, Baltimore, you would imagine obviously. if you lived in D.C. or thereabouts, you would find reason to be in Baltimore if for no other reason than just to take flight. We better get our trip to Baltimore over as quickly as possible, Al said. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how everyone who's ever taken a trip to Baltimore also feels, I think. Uh, they go to Baltimore, they go to the grocery store, and they find a weird clue in the grocery store. A couple of clues, actually. One of which, they open a random package, and they find a note from Glenn Runsider. By the way, this uh, whole uh, scene reminded me of uh, 
like a magic trick. Like just pick any card. And then right. you know, and it's like, oh, just do whatever and it'll be whatever you want. And it was. They they picked a random box and they got exactly what they needed right. from that random box. Right. They also pick up a piece of technology just as like a they just randomly pick a tape recorder or something up off the shelf and they take it with them back to headquarters and they hand it over to one of the data miners at the headquarters and he's like what's with this super old shitty 40 year old outdated tape recorder that you're handing me he's like but i just bought this at the store this morning (laughs) dun 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 Uh, it's a very corny way of expressing that something's going on with with time joe ends up heading back to his apartment and like as he's making his way there time is regressing and instead of finding himself in his 1992 apartment he finds himself and it's like the 1970s or something right. in his apartment like down to the the technology has changed he doesn't owe the refrigerator any money whenever he wants to get something out of it the door opens normally without him having to put a nickel in it and then what he's been told to do is that there's going to be a can of Ubik delivered to him at his apartment. And this Ubik, we don't, it's just a MacGuffin at this point. We don't know what it is or what it's meant to do. We just know that it's something that Joe Chip is trying to get his hands on. Right. So he goes down to his mailbox and, and instead and, of and being... there was a, a whole to-do about like, he was like trying to kind of reorient himself to this time period as far as where mail is stored, right? Because like, it was like initially he thought that, oh, I expect mail to come here, but it's like, oh, no, i got to go outside. Right, he tries to find the flap on his door right. where the mail is traditionally vacuum-tubed up or whatever, right. and it's not there. Right. And so he's like, well, how would a person of another time get their correspondence? Right. And he decides to uh, go downstairs. Right. And we didn't close out Al Hammond. What happens with Al Hammond is that Al, on their way back from Baltimore, they get in the elevator to go up to the offices, and he sees a weird flash of the past, basically. Instead of getting in a modern 1992 elevator, Al thinks that he's getting in a 1930s elevator with a a guy running the like he has to open the iron gates and he has to manually decide pull the lever to make the thing go up and down. They did uh, um, shit on the uh, elevator operator like some sort of moron. I thought that was uncalled for. Right. Yeah. That was, <laughs> uh, anyway, Al asks Joe, uh, "What did you see?" Joe was saying to him that made you tell me not to get in the elevator. Al said. Didn't you see the old elevator, open cage, brass from around 1910, with the operator sitting on his stool? No, Joe said. Did you see anything? This, Joe gestured, the normal elevator I see every day when I come to work. Uh, Then our perceptions are beginning to differ, Al realized. He wondered what that meant, and it seemed ominous. And indeed it does uh, turn out to have been ominous, because Al goes upstairs and locks himself in the bathroom and quickly becomes a husk so, uh, in the same way that Wendy did. I think this would be a good opportunity for me to uh, mention this. So I think Al gets – is this the part where he gets tired and he disappears to die? Right. So remember back in the day, Bob, where uh, – back in the Athens days where I would uh, sometimes be under uh, some sort of um, influence uh, yeah. and then I would need to sleep immediately? Yeah. just has to happen now. Like – I felt like maybe I've had one of these half-life moments. I mean, you know, I've seen ghosts and stuff like that. Like, maybe I've almost died because, like, 
when I need to go to sleep in those moments, it has to happen immediately. There's no like time for winding down and shooting the shit. Like I need to sleep like right, right now. So like the whole time I was thinking, I've been in this situation. I know what ha- Al and all these other characters are going through. I mean, I didn't die. Right, just, I survived. You know, I'm still here. But right, like, you did not turn into right. a <laughs> maybe, mummified husk. Maybe I am but. born of Ubik. You know, but like uh, <laughs> I, I felt very uh, familiar with their their uh, their situation. You need to sleep immediately, and you don't need other right. people to be around. Like I don't want. Hey, Bob, don't watch me. I'm gonna crawl in a, right. <laughs> a corner. Keep your cats to yourself. I'm gonna go to sleep. Uh, so Al expires, and Joe is on his own now to try to figure out what the fuck is going on. He goes back to his apartment like we were talking about. He goes down to the ground floor. He suddenly finds that he has keys to open up his 1949 or whatever mailbox that he suddenly is in ownership of. And there was a, and those, there was a lot of that, too, right? Where it's like, oh, shit, I am in this time period, and I either intuitively know what to do or whatever I need is in my pocket. Things, right. Yeah, just kind of manifests. Right. And so he's able to open his mailbox and he's able to open the package that's in his mailbox as he's expecting. But instead of finding a fancy 1992 style aerosol can of fancy Ubik, what he finds is like, I forget which iteration he finds, but he, he finds like a balm. Yeah. He, he finds... Uh, a medicine that you would traditionally find from the night. It's still called Ubik, but it's like an earlier iteration of Ubik, and it's not the thing that he needs right. to do the trick. Right. Um, and then he realizes that, because part of the plan is to ultimately end up in Omaha or something, or Des Moines, I forget Des where Des Moines, as I right. like to call it. D- Des Moines, I think. Oh, well, yeah, sure. And... In 1992 time, he could just get on a hypersonic rocket or whatever, and he would be there in five minutes. But because he's regressed so far into the past, he needs to rent an airplane from someone and get himself flown there. So, you know how uh, traditionally I uh, don't like the people poo-pooing about the future? I do like uh, this dick guy poo-pooing the past. Like, the further the back you go, it's more more cumbersome, more of a hassle. This is an accurate Super reflection going backwards. Right. Yeah, it's like, oh, fuck. Right. It takes forever to right. get to... Joe Chip, yeah. Joe Chip has never even fucking driven a car. Right. And now all of a sudden he's got to drive this giant tank of a Cadillac or whatever right. all the way across town to the airfield. Right. Um, but anyway, he gets to the airfield and he negotiates with various... 1940s airfield men, and he gets himself an airplane ride. I think he sells because, like, initially he tried to sell his car, but as the car as quickly he, becomes yeah. a, he, it, it goes from being a really fancy 1949 car to being a some piece of shit, super dumpy right. 1937 like, car. While he's negotiating, it's like I'm right. going to give you this thing, it's like that piece of shit, and then he turns around like, oh fuck, right, yeah. Uh, but what what has also happened is that his Ubik has transformed from the 1949 Ubik to the 1937 Ubik. By the way, I think you are a decade off because this was the, the start of the Second World War of France. That's the they had a leg up on the Germans. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's actually that is mentioned a couple of times. Yeah. You're right. Um, anyway, he ends up trading his bottle of Ubik, which is not the Ubik that he needs. Right. He trades it for the flight to Des Moines because apparently th- this kind of Ubik is made of like flakes of gold or something. Right, right. Yeah, it was some sort of 
either how it was made, and I think it was like the flask or whatever. There was some value that the the guy saw in it. Right. Um, so he gets to Des Moines, and it takes some time. In Des Moines, things start to get super fucking weird, right? If, if they haven't been weird yet, yeah. they're, they're even weirder in Des Moines. He meets up with what remains of the psychics. I think we've lost another one or two, right? right. They've become super tired in Abe fashion and lock themselves in the bathroom right. and become <laughs> dried husks of themselves. <laughs> and we know that Pat is still there. Pat seems vibrant and totally fine right. and unusually serene given the situation that they find themselves in, which is like it's 1939 right. and they're used to 1992 and they don't know what the fuck is going on. Right. Very nonchalant on her part. Like, ah. Right. So Joe gets to the what's supposed to be a memorial service for Glenn Runsider. And throughout this, by the way, it should be noted that Glenn, that Runsider keeps popping up in strange places right. and in strange ways. Right. Where Now, did, like, was, was he limited to Joe and Al as long as Al was alive? He, I mean, I guess our perspective has always been Joe. But, like, he never made an appearance to anyone else. As far as we knew? As far as we know, he's not also trying to communicate with the rest of the team, except maybe he's showing up on their money. So they, they might notice that for some reason their quarter now has the pro, the bust profile right. of Runsider instead of George Washington yeah. or Oprah. Yeah. Or whoever. There's a couple of funny <laughs> ones that they that, – that Dick – There was no Oprah. <laughs> There's no Oprah. He did not predict Oprah in 1969. Oh, man. That would have been something. Some hefty black woman from Chicago. Right. But anyway, uh, Runsider keeps popping up in Joe Chip's, sort of like at the edges of Joe Chip's perception over and over again, both in terms of like like an odd note here or there, like some graffiti on the wall or at the bottom of a a citation that he's been issued by the right. local fuzz. Right. Um, or the shitter. Also, yeah, like, yeah, it's like everywhere. Right, and also on the funny money. And we're not sure exactly what's going on, but it, what we're led to believe is that Runsider is, even though he was unable to enter Half-Life, maybe he did, in, is in some way in communication with this world. Uh, maybe not traditional way where you pack him in ice and he's you're able to talk to him on the little speaker wire thing. But in some way, he's obviously having an influence on the world. Right. Now, uh, by the way, uh, before we go on, at this point, we still think things are upside down. That run sitter is the dead one. Because like the, the whole thing about the Des Moines, or Des Moines, if you're one of those cultured people, uh, is that they were going to his funeral, right? Cause so it's still upside down. Right. Like we're thinking he's dead and everybody else is alive. Right. And it is not until Joe gets to, I want to say it's the moment that he gets to like the pharmacy in this, in downtown Des Moines okay. or whatever. Okay. And he's talking to the pharmacist about what the fuck Ubik is and what it can do. And he sort of chooses, as he's standing outside this pharmacy, he has that moment, that same moment that Al Hammond had at the elevator, where he's able to see the old elevator sort of laid on top of the new elevator. For a moment, Joe Chip sees the flash of the 1992 pharmacy. But that was before uh, he entered it, right? Cause like he, before the, he entered They were going it, to the hotel, yeah. and then he's like, let me go to the drugstore. And it was kind of like oscillating between old drugstore. Because the, the 
either the hotel person or, or another drugstore said the place they're looking for no longer exists. But if you go down there, there's like a yellow building and it's whatever. And so when he right. went and there, so that what he so in 1939 it no longer exists. Right. But the as he's seeing it, he's able to see the current abandoned drugstore. He's able to see the 1992 modern version of it, and he's able to see the throwback before it was abandoned right. drugstore, right. and he has to choose which one he right. wants to walk into when, right. and he ends up choosing the throwback one. So it's like a hopscotch in time, and he jumped into the right one. Right, and then the son of a bitch pharmacist is like, yeah, I'll sell you some Ubik for $40, <laughs> and all Joe Chip has is his bogus 1992 money with Runsider's face on it, which the pharmacist isn't going to take, right, of course. Right, by the way, the, the whole uh, the mindfuck was with the money. Like, there would be like 50 cents here, $40 there, and then I can never tell, like, is this important? Is this like a big hurdle for you to crime? <laughs> because none of the money that they mentioned was like a big thing. Like, I got like coins in my pocket, Man, coin purse. Uh, right. That's more than that. But apparently, ah, oh, fuck. Come on. Right. It's also it's never not amusing to me the things that people are unable to imagine around. Right. Like from their current world. So in like 1955 and 1969, the years that Philip K. Dick is a normal human being and alive in the world. Like it's important that you have coins on, right? You, right? Like it's a, a daily part of life that you're walking around having both cash and also coins, right. so you can tip the guy fifty cents or right. whatever, you, right? Like you, that's you, a normal yeah, part you, of life. You need maximum flexibility to go about your day, right? And still, for some reason, in 1992, like a big part of life is walking around with a bunch of quarters and nickels right. uh, in this futuristic world where you can get <laughs> on a hypersonic jet and travel to the moon in 45 minutes. But they still had, you know, 1992, you still had use of uh, public phones. I mean, coins were coins of the realm. No, I know that they were still in our 1992, right. yes. But like in the 1992 that also has uh, free meth out of the <laughs> dispenser on the wall and the 1992 <laughs> that also has your loved ones that you can talk to long after they're dead. Right. Like you'd think, by the way, I, well, I, fir first of all, also like if you're going to pop open the fridge, it's going to cost more than a nickel because a nickel isn't anything. Right. right? <laughs> like, That's true. I can see it being like five, five post creds, please, right. but not a nickel. Right. Imagine how, um, what a party pooper you'd be if you time traveled in the past like a lot of the stuff that people think about the future later none of that happens i mean there's a lot of great things there's the internet and this and that but like there's nobody flying yeah, let me tell you let me tell you how good the future is let me explain facebook <laughs> to you <laughs> like take your uncle and he becomes crazier and he shares right. stuff yeah everything is terrible nothing has yeah. changed <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, there's air conditioning everywhere. And yeah, you can fly anywhere. You can get you know, a $25,000 car that is like the incredible lap of luxury compared right. to every other I, moment I, in time. I, I, I would sell the basic things like air conditioning, airbags, every which way. You can't possibly die in a car. Like, easy death. Yeah. Anyway, it's hard to explain the last couple chapters of this so you, uh, you know, I told you last week that I was uh, at a certain rate, I think it was halfway through, and you told me, oh boy, there's going to be a little bit of a thing at the end, and uh, you were right, the, right, the way that the story... <laughs> so it, it turns out that what's going on here 
it seems, is that this Jory character pops back up, right? And yeah. and actually, before that happens, Pat is, like, torturing the shit out of right. Joe. Like, yes. dr- dragging him around by his fingernails, basically. Joe Sound be- familiar? Joe enters your, your gonna-need-some-sleep state. Right. And... And is sort of escorted by Pat up to his hotel room after he fe- – because right. he feels like he's failed. He's trying to get this Ubik and he feels like he's a total fucking failure and he torturously drags himself up the stairs rather than getting on the elevator because he feels like if he gets on the elevator, he'll never come out of the elevator, which seems like it might be true. So he drags himself up the stairs and he gets to his hotel room and he closes the door. And he's just ready to die, and he doesn't even fucking care anymore. And who is sitting in the room now waiting for him but uh, Glenn Runsider himself? Right. Before we get to uh, Runsider, chapter 13, because I I wanted to – because I made my uh, cat prediction very early, right? Right. But chapter 13, uh, this path, very uh, weird, uh, right? Three letters, two of them are similar to cat. Yes. So there's a thing in chapter 13 where like she corrected herself, cat-like and clever. And I said, uh-huh. <laughs> I knew it. This whole, uh, I don't even know why there are other chapters. It's over. Like, the, this is a cat. 180 pages into this 220-page <laughs> book, Dick finally shows his hand. And then the way she's, like, toying with him as he's, like, trying to crawl up the stairs. I'm like, whoa. You're not wrong. Like, she's cat-like. Yeah. <laughs> she is very cat-like. <laughs> Anyway, what happens in that scene where Joe Chip finds that in his hotel room waiting for him is Glenn Runsider. Glenn produces a can, a 1992 style can of Ubik, and sprays it on him. And all of a sudden, uh, Joe is revived, right? Joe right. goes from... Now, do we, do, we, do we know at this point that that era of Ubik is effective, but the ones that he was going back in the past are... It's it's not effective, right? It seems like this 1992 Ubik is is all that it's been advertised, right? And, right. And no, none of the other Ubiks would have done the trick, but this 1992 right. Ubik saves the day, right? Or at least keeps Joe alive a little bit longer, right? Um, and just to finish off, before we get into going back and understanding what the fuck was actually going on, as opposed to what we thought was going on. Joe has a conversation with Ella, Runsider's wife, where she says, I'm going to go now and I'm going to leave you in charge. That you are now the one who has to battle Jory. You you are the one that has to hang on in this purgatory, this half-life area, and be here for Runsider whenever he needs help. Right. I'm going to go. she is... Uh going to be in some womb like she's she's off to she's off to be reborn or whatever she got a job promotion she's going to be alive right she gets to go be alive again okay and now it's joe chip's job to continue fighting off jory because jory is like some sort of weird psychic vampire it turns out that it's jory who's been sucking the life out of right this team of psychics and been toying with them along the way that it's jory who's Basically running the Matrix, for lack of a right. better explanation. He's, that, a, he's a, a little shit. Remember uh, Breaking Bad? Was it Todd? What was that guy's name? Yeah. yeah. 
I, like the whole time, like this little piece of shit, like <laughs> just He's leave t- people alone. Sort of Todd like, and he doesn't have much motivation so far as right? we can tell yeah, beyond like, <laughs> beyond his hunger. What? Like he just likes to eat people. And, and just, so that's all very weird, right? And I, yeah. and it almost becomes. It turns everything on its head in terms of what we thought Pat was up to, because now are we to are we to understand that Pat was just like a functionary of Jory's design here in some important way? And then it turns out that he's about to eat Pat, too. I so, think he did. She, she's dead, right? Right. So she ends up dead. Then they're all dead, basically. And Joe is the only one who's... Because he's got this uh, Ubik. He's got the Ubik, right. And he can spray his ubic and maintain his vitality and keep jory and at as bay. long right and he's as long as he's got that like whenever it wears off apparently this todd jory guy will kill him right unless because now he's been given he's been given the keys by the key master or whatever and he can just summon 1992 to him Whenever he needs a refill. Yeah, that one's kind of a, like, oh, this is one of the, see, this is why, you know, I, I said at the end, the last couple of chapters, like, this is why I poo-poo science fiction books, because it's just like, you're going to make shit up at this point. So, like, so he, at the pharmacy, when he realized the pharmacist was another iteration of, of Jory. Another projection a, of Jory, because Jory is both the owner of, he's, the, he, he's like, uh, he's Agent Smith of the Matrix also. Right, 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 yeah. He's everywhere, yeah. He bas- And then he's creating the world. That's why, like, don't drive too far off town, right. because, he's, you know, whatever. I, right, there's nothing there. I'm, he's the right. architect and he's Agent Smith in the Matrix. Right, um, but like uh, uh, Joe, like willed this Ubik into existence. It didn't happen at that moment, but later on, some woman showed up and they go, oh, you called right. me. And of course, and of course, Joe's like, "You want to fuck? <laughs> <laughs> you want to eat steak first, and then <laughs> right." Anyway, so chapter sixteen basically ends with Joe, like, resigned to his life as a. Spirit warrior against right. Jory, right? Would you, by the way, take up the charge? I'm like, man, just come on. I mean, Jory, if the alternative me. is being eaten and turned into a, a sure, a short, a short, husk, painful yeah. moment, but then it's like, <laughs> but you don't know, so right? Oh, so, okay. so because Ella is able to go off and be reborn, like, do we know if any of these people who get eaten by this fucking Jory character are able to be reborn at some point, or are they just now, like, part of Jory? Because that's know, a but bummer. They're, but they're not part of anything. They're dead. You don't know. That's the thing, is the oh, next please. level of reality I'll, I'll down could no, be worse. It's classic Abe status quo fucking bullshit. <laughs> I'll stick with the... Uh, I'll, I'll just go ahead and assume that the lifeless husk on the closet floor is the end of the story, and that this fucking... There's not By existential the way, I mean, torment I, inside the body of Jory forever. I, I think this whole thing is like a, a manifestation of one person's dream but like i would not t- I, like no i don't do all this work like it's too much i'd rather right. just go to sleep anyway so that's how chapter 16 ends and there's still uh two pages to go chapter 17 is just like a page and a half and it the final ad for ubic is fucking intense it says <laughs> i am ubic before the universe was i am I made the suns, I made the worlds, I created the lives and the places they inhabit, I moved them here, I put them there, they go as I say, they do as I tell them, I am the word and my name is never spoken, the name which no one knows, I am called Ubik, but that is not my name, I am, I shall always be. A lot of confidence is Ubik. It's uh, 
a long way from like a good deodorant. Right, yeah. <laughs> and it's very cautious earlier. Use as directed, don't do this, don't right. do that. But now it's like, I'm fucking everything, man. Uh, I run everything. So after spending the middle two-thirds, basically, of this book in Joe Chip's head, we find ourselves back in Glenn Runsider's head. He says, Glenn Runsider could not find the moratorium owner. He's looking for this guy who he's talking to earlier. This is for you, Runsider said, and handed the attendant several 50-cent pieces which he had scrounged from his various pockets. I appreciate the rapidity with which you accomplished the job. Thank you, Mr. Runsider, the attendant said. He glanced at the coins, then frowned. What kind of money is this, he said. Runsider took a good long look at the 50-cent pieces. He saw at once what the attendant meant. Very definitely, the coins were not as they should be. Whose profile is this, he asked himself. Who's this on all three coins? Not the right person at all. And yet he's familiar. I know him. And it's Joe Chip right. who's on the 50-cent piece. And right. that's how the book ends. Right. I, I, now, fig- I figured that last part was just totally made up, but yes. What do you mean it's made up? I, 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 here... My biggest criticism... Made up relative to what? Because, you know... My thinking of... By the way, again, uh, big picture. I know we're two hours into this, but uh, my big picture is that I am glad to have read it. It's kind of like I'm going to be back to reading fiction now for a little bit uh, before I go back to nonfiction. But, like, science fiction is is a lot of I'm making shit up, and this just felt like... I mean, what do you think it means? Like, this is totally just some made of bullshit. Like, what is this? All right. So my theory of the case here is that, and I think this is basically borne out in the text, on the moon. Luna. On Luna, Joe and company didn't live, and Runsider didn't die, right? In fact, the exact opposite happened. Right. I think that I think that's basically spelled out explicitly. I mean, yeah, that's the, like the basic reading of it, yeah. Right, so you have to go back and reimagine everything that's happened from the perspective of Runsider is on the outside trying to communicate with all of these dead people. And that what Joe Chip and the fellow anti-psychics are experiencing is half-life, is some version of... Whatever Ella uh, was going through, his wife. Right, this shared experience of maybe it's all even just happening in the ship's cold pack on their way back from Luna, right? Because right. They, there's a there's a line early in the book about how you just sort of psychically connect with whoever you're packed with and who they would be packed with at that for the first part of their journey is everybody who died on the moon. Right. Um, and I think what happens ultimately is that the reason that the world becomes sort of suffused with Glenn Runsider over and over again is because that's just he's he's basically has become their god, their collective god, because he's the one who keeps plugging into their shared experience of reality. And it's not quite the communication isn't quite right, but he's just sort of there, right? He's right. sort of been inserted in some way. Right. And I think what happens is that that takes a great toll on Runsider and he dies. Now that's not spelled out at all in the text, except for when he says to one of the attendants, attendants at some point that he's just been made incredibly exhausted by this whole ordeal. Right. He said and that I a think, couple of times, though, right? I mean, it wasn't... Right. He's He talks about the way that he's becoming tired, and that is sort of our clue right. that 
somebody's going to die in this story, which is anytime somebody says that they're tired and they go uh, off, then they end up go, dying. You know, when they do that. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and so I think what happens in chapter 17 is that Runsider has just died. And now what we have is he's now living in this other world where Joe Chip has become that, that because he's in cold pack close to Joe Chip, Joe Chip becomes that invading psychic force in the same way that he had become the invading psychic force of everyone else. Okay. I, 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 uh, my theory is uh, simpler than that and uh, likely not correct, but Jory was able to create a world, right? I mean, a limited world, but also kind of, you know, detailed enough. Like, you can travel around Des Moines and do this. Right. Like, he, he would not create a world in New York when they're not in New York, but he would create one when they're in Des Moines, right? I think that Run Sitter has been dead from the Luna moment, and everything else is just like a, just a manifestation of his dreams. It doesn't make sense because, like, the other, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't track with that theory. But like having just finished the book a few hours ago, that is my opening theory. We're gonna find that every to... everybody died. So everybody's dead, and then he. It's appealing, but does that take into account? Are they all somehow packed in Half Life, or is it just right? That's why I, you know I, I'm not so sure. So like about who that. who saved the day and and put them all on ice in order to get them into Half Life is what I, I don't so think there. there that's the thing because like the the story is like first of all what happened to the actual evil people like you know the, he's been chasing somebody then there's like that Mick whatever and all those people like none of them right to- so we've we've done this whole two hours without saying the name Hollis and Hollis, yeah, Hollis is the yeah. big it's the big antagonist of right. the, the entire the situation big bad never shows up I mean maybe right. he's the one that was part of the jihadi uh, strike on the moon but like you know who knows. Right. Well, no, I think that it's clear that Hollis is the one who orchestrated the entire thing on the moon. It could have been ISIS. It could have been anybody. (laughs) I suppose it could have been (laughs) ISIS, yes. Um, So overall, did you like the book? I did. I love the book. And it's because I don't particularly care about making all of the... I's dot and the T's cross right. and for the plot to work itself out in a way that matters. I think it does matter. I just think it trying to tie it all into a neat bow in a way that you would demand of, say, a $12 movie that you wanted to go see on a Saturday afternoon, uh, it's not going to satisfy you in that way. And that's right. not what Philip K. Dick is trying to do. He's trying to poke at the ways in which life can rather suddenly become something else entirely in very weird ways. And I think that, yes, in part, a lot of that has to do with his extensive use of uh, drugs, both psychosomatic and otherwise. And amphetamine. Or psych- psychoactive and not. But he was also someone, I think, who was absolutely convinced that the world as presented is not a true representation of reality. And whether that's like because of weird dimension questions in terms of there being 13 dimensions and our ability to only really understand four of them. Who knows? I think some people are sort of psychically either broken or tuned in. It depends on which way you want to go with it. And he was definitely one of those people. Um, 
and I I just enjoy the trip, for lack of a uh, better phrase. I enjoy going on these journeys into his mind and wondering about the ways in which my own reality can break in weird ways. And he's a wonderful writer. I mean, right. for for all of the sort of shit that I'm dumping on him, there are moments where it, I'm sort of shocked at how, especially in a in a big picture way, the way he's able to build a world out of basically nothing uh, right. without going into all of the hard science fiction world-building nonsense where he can just start using these three or four words that are just slightly different from our normal everyday back and forth right. uh, to both dislocate you from this reality and place you perfectly into his. Uh, is a, There's a certain kind of magic there, and I think that's what you're talking about in part when you're saying that you're going to start reading fiction again because yeah. you've forgotten how much fucking fun it is right. to get lost in somebody and, else's world. And and this is, like I said, this is not my favorite Philip K. Dick thing, but I, I it was like a lot of fun. I mean, I, I try to save the book because when I saw how many pages it was, I could probably do this the week of, you know, because I didn't want to read it two weeks ago and then right. – my memory is very limited. Uh, and so, so, like, I saved it, and it was a lot of fun just reading it this week. Yeah, I it's a lot of fun, of this, and yeah. it it is rewarding. It's one of those that is super rewarding to read a second time, at least through, like, or at least, like, a time and a half. I don't know that I got a whole lot more out of the last third of the book than I right. got out of it the first time, but I definitely got a lot more out of the first two-thirds of the book the second time right. through. It's a lot of fun, yeah. Um, but yeah, good book. I'm glad I picked it. I believe that makes it your turn for. I have uh, two. Uh, next time. Two choices. I don't know. It, it just depends on the schedule. Well, hang on. Let's do the wrap up. That's our oh, tease that's to right. keep you here oh, okay. to the very end. There we go. Uh, you've been listening to Cast Iron Brains, a podcast with Bob and Abe. If you've made it this far, you are either really into Ubik <laughs> or, or you have also fallen asleep you and fallen woken up in an alternate dimension. <laughs> Reality has cracked in such a way that's left you here. Uh, you can find the show over at brainiron.com. There'll be show notes and other stuff there probably. Also contact the show on Facebook or Twitter. Email the show castironbrains at no, that's not right. Brainironpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, Mark Gillig is the composer of our opening and closing themes. Abe, hey, what are we gonna do next month? So there are two choices, and it's uh it, it all depends on the 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 schedule in October. So ideally, the first choice. Ideally. Third Thursday, yes. I don't know if you've heard of the show, but The West Wing. I am familiar with The West Wing, yes. The the West Wing is doing a reunion in October. And they're filming an episode from the third season, like live. And it's going to be available on HBO. But I don't, I think they're trying to do it. Wait, wait, wait. They're just doing an episode of season three? It's it's Hartfield's Landing, but Aaron Sorkin is rewriting it 
and is doing some sort of updated version of Hartfield Landing, which was the third season, whatever, episode 18 or whatever, right? What episode uh, is that? Remind me, because I've, I've only seen it once, whereas it is, you've uh, seen it 57 like, so Bar- times. Bartlett is playing chess with both uh, Toby and Sam Seaborn, and like there's like a, it basically it's a lot of just like yakety yak, you know? Not, oh, uh, from Aaron Sorkin, you don't say. Yeah, a lot of yakety yak. Right. So, but yeah. I suspect that it may not be ready until for for the third Thursday of October. So, if it is, that would be the best. And then we can just shit on, you know, just you can shit on Sorkin, and I can praise him. Right. Fa- failing that, the plot to destroy America would be a good backup, just in case the. Which is an HBO miniseries, right? Right, right. Which is basically like a, yeah. So it's a miniseries, like a five episode. But basically it's just like, you know, like in when FDR ran against, like he, he basically runs against like some Hitler type, you know. like right. the, And then the Lindbergh guy. Lindbergh and, guy, yeah. Yeah, and then things fall apart. And it's not, it's, it's not a bad alternative. But ideally, hopefully they release the, the West Wing play that's going to be available on HBO in October because I think that would be right. fun. Well, yeah. we'll be looking forward yes. to Aaron Sorkin <laughs> in October. Did you see the preview for the latest Sorkin movie that's coming to Netflix? Is this the the, the Chicago something? Yeah, the Chica- the trial of the Chicago yes. Seven yeah. or something like that. I have to it- say I'm jumping in now. It's a shame. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Hey, the Lord. third Thursday in October is the fifteenth. And what Bob's about to talk about comes out on the 16th. <laughs> the the Sorkin play, right? So that is that a Netflix? It's not an HBO thing, right? It's a Netflix thing. Oh no! The what are we talking? Chicago the tr- Seven. Chicago Seven yeah. comes out that Friday, the uh, 16th. Okay. Okay. So I, hopefully I, you're. Yeah. Hopefully the uh, yeah. So two months in a row of Sorkin. <laughs> yeah, that'd be yeah. It'd be like a sounds October like Lori Sorkin. is picking the <laughs> Sorkin for November too. That'd be fun fantastic. Too. Yeah, that movie actually looks pretty sweet. If you see the preview yeah. for it, then I actually don't know anything fun. about this. I you know I, I know about those twelve jurors that mo- movie from the fifties, but I don't know anything about this. All right, Abe. So that's uh, content, Ma Ubik. You got uh, you got anything else for us tonight? I, after two hours, no, no. This is it. No more. I said all analysis. The, I said all the words. Cats. My main thing was I wrote down like I, I need to mention the cats, so I did. It's <laughs> good. I'm glad that's what you took from this book. That's right. <laughs> I guess that's uh, all we've got for tonight. We'll talk to you next time. Later. No, uh, no silly outtakes here at the end. Well, except except at the very very end, there there's a little bit of. Our classic Abe drop. But I'm just dropping in here to remind you that if you would like to purchase a copy of Ubik, you can do so by clicking through the links that we have provided in these show notes. That is an affiliate program through Amazon, which allows us to get a very small amount of money in return, sucking on the teat that is Jeff Bezos's universe dominating evil multinational corporation but that is what it is so if you'd like to buy the book you're probably going to buy it through amazon so you can do that by clicking on those links i encourage you to support your local bookstores of course but in the event that you cannot get this book ubic from your local library or from your preferred independent local bookstore be sure to use our links. 
and we will be back to regularly scheduled blathering on about news and culture later in the week. If you like these sorts of episodes where we talk about one big work, I'd love to hear about it so that we can do more of it. Just let us know. Find us on Facebook or Twitter. Drop us an email, brainironpodcast at gmail.com, or like I said, Twitter. The handle is at CK underscore Taverner, T-A-V-E-R-N-E-R. Pretty sure you can find it just by searching Brain Iron on Twitter. As always, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you later. times.